Hello, bonsoir, and welcome to the Get French Football News Show. I'm Nathan Staples, and joining me this week are freelance legal writer Mohamed Ali, GFFM writer Eric Devin, and later in the show, our editor-in-chief Christian Nuri will also be joining us. Whoever said that League 1 was a one-horse race, even this early on the title race has been rocked and an unlikely team sit at the top that will gleefully enjoy others tripping up. But we'll have more on that, the international call-ups and some breaking news after a roundup of this week's news. The biggest story of the week is today's late breaking news that former Los Angeles Dodgers owner Frank McCourt has agreed to purchase troubled Olympique de Marseille from Margarita Lewis Dreyfus. While the sale is not official yet, all parties expect the deal to be ratified by the end of the year. In on-pitch news, Marseille earned their first win of the Ligue 1 season on Friday, a 2-0 win at the Velodrome over um, over Lorient with a goal and an assist from Relic Cabela. Lyon suffered a shock loss away at Dijon 4-2, a poor result that, but one that was made even worse by the club's announcement that both Alexandre Lacazette and Nabil Fakir are set to join Aldo Kalulu and Rashid Gazal on the sidelines with Fakir to go undergo an atheroscopic procedure. In the multiplex, each of the five matches had two goals scored, resulting in three wins and two draws. At Nice, an early goal from Vincent Cosiello was cancelled out by Frank Beira's goal. Equaliser for Lille, sorry. And while Adama Dikabi scored his first Ligue 1 goal for Rennes to earn the visitors a point at Montpellier, Daniel Congre having given the host the lead in the first half. Caen defeated visiting Bastia 2-0, Roddy Rodolan recording a pair of assists, while Metz also recorded a home win by the same score over a hapless Angers, the Loire Cub, one of only two teams in the division yet to score. The other, of course, is promoted Nancy, who lost 2-0 to Gangomp, the Breton side becoming the surprise leader heading into the international break. Sunday's matches started with a hard-fought derby de l'Antique as hosts Bordeaux welcoming, welcomed back veteran goalkeeper Cedric Carrasso behind a makeshift defence of Jeremy Tulalan and Gregory Sertic. Despite the absences of the team's usual centre-backs, Le Gerondin had enough to hold off visiting Nantes 1-0. In the early evening match, Saint-Étienne and Toulouse gave full debuts to new signings, Henri Saive for the hosts and Oudson Edouard for Le TFC. But despite good chances abounding, neither or they or their teammates could break the deadlock, Toulouse surprisingly still unbeaten after three matches. The weekend's big match saw defending champions Paris Saint-Germain travel to Monaco and both managers employed a tactical shift with Monaco playing a 3-5-1-1 and PSG reverting to last season's 4-3-3. Leonardo Jardim changes benefiting from some horror defending by David Luiz in a 3-1 win that sees them go joint top of the table with Gangomp on seven points. In Ligue 2, Brest's trip to Sochaux this evening will see the winner atop the table, while surprising Amin, Amin won again the Picardy club level on points with Brest. The two French participants in the Europa League, Nice and Saint-Étienne, learned their fate in the group stages on Friday with Les Verts drawn with Mainz, Anderlecht and Kabbalah 
with Nice, uh, while Nice, apologies, will have a much tougher time of it playing with Schalke, Red Bull Leipzig, and moneyed Russian side Krasnodar. And that's all for the news. But remember, to keep up to date with everything to do with French football, head on over to our website at www.getfootballnewsfrance.com and follow us on Twitter at GFFN, where we will provide you with around-the-clock coverage of the transfer deadline day on Wednesday. We start this week with the breaking news that Marseille are set to be sold later this year. Margarita Lewis-Dreyfus will um, sell her majority stake in the former LA Dodgers owner, Frank McCourt. But he might not quite be the silver lining that Loem fans are hoping for. Mo, what's your initial reaction to this news? Um, well, my initial reaction was obviously one of excitement because obviously um, there's been many months that you know the club was trying to position itself into into uh, a structure where in which it can be sold uh, to uh, investors in which now the club can recover from the frustrations of the last few years and position itself also as back in the French and European elite. But, you know, no, no one knew uh, who the owner was right up to today. The, 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 new, the new guy in charge, Frank McCourt, he hasn't appeared in one media report, one rumour, you know, over the last couple of uh, weeks and months since uh, the takeover uh, was announced in April. So it's obviously... A massive shock to see him, you know, with with the owner and with the with the mayor of Marseille in some of the media reports this afternoon. And obviously, once his name did filter through, everybody, including myself, went straight to Google to look at his uh, history, his net worth, you know, his background, and obviously, you know, a lot of unsavory, <laughs> unsavory news articles, not least in the LA Times and in the New York Times as well. Um, about his ownership with with his previous uh, team, the LA Dodgers, which I'm sure Eric will tell us uh, more about. So obviously, you know, at the end at the end of the day, the bottom line is, you know, we we are hearing at the very least the the sound bites that you know Marseille are now going to be entering into a new chapter. Funds are gonna are gonna come through, um, and the team is going to re- hopefully return to its place among the top three in Liga and hopefully back into the Champions League. Um, and, you know, this is this is a good sign. You know, we, it's not just Frank McCourt, it's a consortium of American owners as well. Um, and obviously Margarita Louis-Dreyfus and family will continue to hold a small percentage. So, you know, now what we've been arguing and kind of being frustrated about for the last couple of months is an owner not willing to spend, an owner that doesn't care anymore. But now that's all set to change. Whether or not it's with the with the, with the guy that we're all hoping for, you know, that's time will tell. But at the end of the day, I think we should remain at least cautiously optimistic about everything. Yeah, that might be the best way to go for this time at the moment. But let's get some more facts on the deal and what's happening mm. with uh, with you, Christian. So, so what's the latest that we know about this deal? Well, as Mo rightly pointed out, there hadn't been virtually a single uh, news article written about Mr. McCourt. Uh, actually, there, there was only one, and it was an interview with another individual, an intermediary, discussing the potential of uh, Mr. McCourt coming in. And this was, of course, uh, back in May, so a long time since his name has been mentioned. It was a very hectic day for a lot of, uh, I think, a lot of the French media, as again, Mo saying that really nobody had a clue who, who he was, even when there was a picture taken of him, still people were trying to uh, uh, desperately figure out what this deal is going to be about, who this man really is. I think 
To be honest with you, we didn't learn that much today apart from the fact, uh, the, the very simple fact that Mr. McCourt now has an exclusive, effectively an ex exclusive right to negotiate and finalize uh, the purchase of Olympique de Marseille. Uh, what this means, therefore, is that there is nobody now who can come in and try and better his offer. Uh, that is what this sort of exclusive deal with Margarita Louis-Dreyfus means. But apart from that, Mr. McCourt was able to give very little details about the project that he is going to put forward, which already worries me slightly. He gave two interviews with Le, La Provence and also um, uh, L'Equipe, and in both of those interviews he said very, very little about what he planned to do uh, at, at, at Marseille, apart from the fact that he thinks Marseille is the biggest club in France and that it is one of the biggest in Europe. He claims that he can't talk about his plans, etc., because the deal has yet to be ratified, and Marseille and Margarita Louis-Dreyfus are hoping that that happens before the end of the calendar year. But if we cast our minds back to 2011 and QSI's purchase of PSG, Nasser Al Khalifi and co. were very clear even before their deal was ratified about the sort of players they were going to go and buy, the sort of things that they intended to do, and we've had absolutely no clarity today from the former LA Dodgers owner. So that worries me already slightly. I think the second thing uh, that worries me as well is that he was asked a specific question by L'Equipe, I believe it was, uh, saying, you know, is he going to live in France when uh, he finally takes over Marseille? He said he had no idea. He also said he had really no idea what his management team was going to be or, or use some phrase like he's, he's, he's sort of outlining the contours of this project. This is all very frustrating for me, especially when you consider that just yesterday, Gerard Lopez, the former F1 Lotus team owner, was still in talks with Marseille. So this suggests to me that actually both projects were sort of in the final, in the final round, so to speak, and ultimately Louis Dreyfus went with uh, Mr. McCourt. Now, that's very difficult, I think, for a lot of Marseille fans to take this evening. Uh, Gerard Lopez has since given an interview on RMC where he states that actually he had been speaking to Marcelo Bielsa a lot uh, and it looked like that actually Bielsa did that vault fast uh, with the Lazio job this summer because he thought potentially he'd be taking over at Marseille again. So I think, to be honest, this is, again, it's come out of the blue and Mo is right to be cautiously optimistic. We can't make any judgments uh, on this potential deal until we know more details. Mm. But my point simply is the fact that we haven't been given more details today when uh, the new owner has, or the new potential owner has had ample opportunity to do so is slightly worrying in itself. Mm. It does put the uh, the warning signs earlier. And a man who might know a little bit more, as we've already mentioned, is, is our man Eric, who obviously lives over the pond, and you know quite a few LA Dodgers fans. Eric, how, how were they with Mr. McCourt and, and his dealings with the, with the baseball team? Yeah, I have two very good friends here in Eugene who are originally from the LA area and, and uh, really, really were not fans of McCourt. Uh, he had a very impetuous relationship with his front office team. He re repeatedly overspent. Now, obviously, uh, there is a, a nominal salary cap in Major League Baseball, but it's not something that really prohibits teams from uh, having vast disparities in terms of uh, in terms of ability to sign players to contracts. Um, and you know, just the way that McCourt re re uh, has had a relationship with with money in terms of financial dealings and and front office personnel really worries me, especially in, in a country like France where you have the DNCG who will be keeping such a close eye on things. And the other thing that I worry about, and this is something that you know I think we've seen time and again with American owners, unfortunately, uh, in European football, is you know with the possible exception of uh, James Pallotta at Roma, most American owners don't seem to view um, European football teams as, as a 
competitive endeavor. Uh, you look at the case of someone like Ellis Short at um, at Sunderland, someone like uh, even John W. Henry to some extent at Liverpool. Uh, there are certainly player purchases, but they also come along with player sales. And you know, I don't I don't see McCourt at this point in time as being someone who's going to you know want to make a big splash and to embrace boldly embrace the tradition of, the tradition of a club like Marseille. Uh, you know, if he does that, he'd be the exception and not the rule. Like I said, Pilato is really the only American who, who had, to my knowledge and to my experiences, had that sort of positive impact on the team. I mean, the Glazers with United, you know, finally they're opening up their first strings this summer, uh, you know, with with Jose Mourinho in charge. But again, it's not, you know, American. These American, you know, owners are, are coming at this from a business perspective. They're not they're not dyed in the wool football fans. They're they're people who are coming into into this sport later in life who see it as something that they can take a crack at. They see the, the money in the Premier League. Uh, I don't know what you know money McCourt envisions getting out of the French League, but the truth be told is I, I don't think that he's he has a full understanding of of what it means to own a football club and you know what it means furthermore to own a football club in France. Particularly again, they are still France's biggest club, whether PSG like it or not. Mm. Some interesting words there, and I, and I I do like to mention that uh, I saw an article earlier retweeted by uh, Tom Coast about the ten worst owners in in sports, and he was second behind uh, Donald Sterling of the LA Clippers. Who, being a Clippers fan, I know how atrociously bad he is. So, it's it, there is some alarm bells ringing, isn't isn't there, Mo? But is there maybe maybe some hope of of improvement? I mean, I won't lie here. But... I feel worse now than I did before before, before I came on here. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, there's there's a lot of you know questions. So like like Christian said, you know, there's the takeover process has been, you know, we all knew that Marseille would soon be taken over as a club, maybe for about a year or two now. But definitely in the last three or four months, you know, people that uh, have had an interest in the club would have formulated their plans, and you know, they've had four months to know, you know. How much money can you commit year on year? What the long-term growth is? Who are you going to bring in? Gerard Lopez has obviously, uh, you know, sounded out that he he basically knew that he'd bring back Marcelo Bielsa. They spend about 80 million on the first windows, etc., etc. And the fact that that hasn't been filtered today, and all this is at the end of the day, is an exclusivity agreement. We've been there before, 10 years ago. Obviously, the the cash cut episode with uh, uh, at Marseille, where the Canadian businessman saw his his bid agreed, and then as soon as the deal was upset to be signed. All sorts of trouble came in, and the deal was uh, scuppered. But you know, at the end of the day, not you know, I don't think we all get excited because obviously the current climate in European football is that you know, when teams get bought out, you tend to think of the Man Cities, the Paris Saint Germain, where you go from zero to five hundred million within within a year. I don't think that's going to be the case with McCourt with Marseille anyway. You know, I think only. In Marseille, you kind of only need, and I say only here, but around about 50 million euros, 60 million euros to plug gaps, you know. to, to You need to build a competitive squad and hopefully keep that squad playing in the Champions League. The Champions League money and, um, you know, year-on-year year qualification for the Champions League will kind of sort out your finances long-term, as we've seen before with Marseille uh, throughout 2010 to 2012. So, you know... The reason why Marseille is in this position right now is because Marguerite Louis Dreyfus has essentially closed the, the purse strings. You know, essentially saying that I'm not going to, I'm not going to provide another penny. So if you don't qualify for the Champions League, then you've got to swag your own losses. 
And therefore, obviously, that's where the fire sale comes through and selling the key players year on year. If you've got an owner that can plug those gaps and help Marseille through cash flow and budgets um, and maintain a highly competitive squad, uh, in France anyway, then, you know, I don't think those astronomical sums that people are thinking, you know, are required. Um, with with Lopez and the other Americans, personally, you know, obviously with Gerard Lopez project, bringing Marseille Bielsa back is obviously a dream for many Marseille fans. But the project by Guggenheim, the second American um, uh, organization that, that were beaten to this agreement, I thought they also provided a very interesting uh, project as well. Um, and I'm a bit worried that, like Christian mentioned, that nothing is sorted through. We'd have to wait till the end of the year. But for somebody with a bit of a sketchy background and there's lots of skepticism around his around his um, intentions, I would have thought the best thing to do is kind of outline your plans, go to the media, because we've seen talk before, you know, I'm going to create the best team in the world, I'm going to win the league, I'm going to make this, you know, the most fantastic club in the in, in the land, etc. You know, that doesn't really amount to much. You need to see numbers, you need to see tangible state, you know, first of all, you need to outline a plan, an organization chart, etc. Hopefully that comes around by the end of the year and, you know, we'll start to see some movement in the January transfer window next summer. Until then, all you can do is hope and be optimistic. Yeah, forever in in, yeah. in eternal hope, it seems like. the yeah. monitor, It's the Marseille mantra at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Christian, obviously, this deal's not fully signed until the end of the year. Is that when it's expected to be to be complete and, and everything handed over? And, and is there any road bumps in the way yet, or is this almost done and dusted? Well, the reality is, Nathan, nobody has a clue. Um, Marseille would like this deal. Margarita Louis Dreyfus would like this deal to be done before 2017 comes around. But the truth is that McCourt can now really do whatever he wants. She's signed an exclusivity. Uh, agreement with him, which means that, as I, as I was saying before, nobody else can really attempt to outbid or, or come in with something different now. And unfortunately, we don't, we're not privy to the terms of that exclusivity agreement when it runs out, when it doesn't. I would like McCourt to prove us wrong. You know, I, I think that Eric does paint the the picture of the American investor into European football, and I don't see McCourt being very different from it. I think a, an example we missed is Stan Kroenke, who's of course come under a lot of uh, fire recently from from the Arsenal uh, fans. So you know, I'd love McCourt to prove 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 us wrong. But the reality of the situation is, this as a business pro in a proposition is a really lucrative one for, from a Marseille point of view. If the figures are right, you know, and McCourt has managed to buy this for 40 million euros, this is a club with incredible potential in terms of merchandise, incredible potential in terms of uh, you know ticket sales. And also within the DNC structure, it's a club with incredible potential to get in a large sponsors, which would allow it to have a big budget for transfers. So McCourt has probably seen this deal, and I hope he's wrong. But I'm, I, sorry, I hope I'm wrong. But he's probably seen this deal as if he can get this for 40 million euros, he can make much, much more money uh, than that by by running a very steady ship uh, and by putting in the money necessary at the beginning in order to make uh, Marseille financially prudent. It is the club with the greatest potential in France and potentially right now the greatest potential in Europe, I think, in terms of where it is now and where it should be. So McCourt's probably seen this as a fantastic business proposition. There's a reason why there were about 9, 10, 11 interested parties this summer. Let's not forget the Iranians who were going to come with a massive deal, apparently, or so to speak. There was Iranian interest uh, sort of channeled through Paolo Tavares, who is a a football agent here in France. 
you know, there were all sorts of uh, projects on the table, and I wish I knew what exactly McCourt has offered Margarita Louis-Dreyfus uh, that the others hadn't. But unfortunately, it is a case of waiting and seeing. Now, you know, Mo's right. Maybe that there is going to be considerable investment, or at least I, I'd expect a little bit more investment you know, than, than what Louis-Dreyfus was offering, because I don't think you can get really any worse than the way in which Marseille was run financially in the last two, three years. But I don't think that this is the project that Marseille fans have been going to bed and dreaming about every night for the last three, four months. I just don't believe it. The, the final question on this is, is to you, Eric, and, and it's, it's, it's looking into the future. Do you think that this might be a match made in heaven, or do you think this is going to end in sort of a messy divorce? Well, I mean, I think Christian makes a, a fine point about merchandising rights, but the fact is where Marseille are on the pitch right now, they're going to need you know, investment to at least the tune of 50 million euros, I would say, to even come close to being where Lyon and Monaco are, to say nothing at PSG, to get in the Champions League, to start making something, to start making any real real headway in terms of being one of the top clubs in Europe. I And, you know, again, McCourt has some money, but, you know, between his costly divorce proceedings and, and you know, other business deals that have soured... I, I don't. I kind of wonder about what kind of cash he has on hand. I mean, similar questions have asked in the recent past about John Henry, uh, the owner of Liverpool. And it, it, I think this is the real issue for for McCourt. That you know, does he have the the cash reserves to take this hand? I know there's staggered payments for transfers and ways to work around things. But you know, we had a, a small discussion earlier on Twitter, and I mentioned uh, Jeremy Clement from Saint Etienne might be you know a, a good a good player to play alongside uh, Diara. Okay, he's going to Angers. Why? Because at this point in time, Marseille probably can't offer him the wages that he wants. And, you know, I, I mean, I can't imagine it's for competitive reasons, given how Angers has started the season. So, I mean, that's really where, where Marseille at. They need, they need money to improve themselves on the pitch. And, you know, McCourt might, if McCourt's looking at this strictly as a business investment, and he's going to try and do it Ellis Short style and, and, you know, spend the bare minimum to achieve a certain level... Uh, that's not going to, you know, engender any new interest in the club. It's 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 could drive them even further backwards. Mm. Well, it's going to be interesting how this progresses, and unfortunately, it's probably not going to make the final bit of the window interesting unless he injects some some cash into the club. But thank you, Mo, for for joining us. Thanks for the very segment. much. I knew you would have a, a nice hot topic about this, and we'll <laughs> we shall have you on soon enough. Thanks. We move on now back to things on the field and to the Sunday evening fixture where Monaco managed a 3-1 victory against PSG at the Stade Louis Deux. This is the earliest that PSG have lost a game in the last four years and is the first time that they have been beaten in August in the Qatari area since that first game of their reign against Lorient in 2011. Christian, how poor were PSG in this one? Well, Nathan, I dare I say it, we warned you all in the uh, Ligue 1 guide, the Get French Double News Ligue 1 guide, we said this could be the season where all of a sudden the French top flight becomes competitive again. And what we saw last night was brilliant for anybody who isn't a PSG fan. We saw Leonardo Hardim set up his stall with, with what was effectively a 5-2-1-2 or a 5-2-2-1 variation uh, in the first half. And as I think you rightly pointed out on Twitter, a sort of 4-4 uh, one one in the second half. Unai Emery had no idea what he was doing. I think some of the tactical decisions that he made yesterday, if Laurent Blanc had made them during his time at PSG, it, people would be calling for his head. He would have been absolutely slaughtered. 
So I think what we've seen here is a Monaco side which has been able to keep many more of its players, its key players, than it did last summer. I thought uh, Bakayoko was ex particularly very, very good at the heart of the midfield. Fabinho in this defensive midfield role, yes, it's not his preferred position, but he really is making it his own at the moment. Valère Germain's movement was brilliant oftentimes. And there was a great cohesiveness about the team, especially, I thought, in the first half. It was great to see Jemison, the young Brazilian defender, who was so hotly tipped uh, to light Europe up when he first came from Brazil, looked like he had his first decent game for Monaco, which is, again, really encouraging. It's not an easy thing to do coming from South America to attempt to settle in a new country and, and indeed, in a new culture. So, generally speaking, Monaco were brilliant. PSG weren't awful, but this is what happens when you decide that you're going to rely on Edinson Cavani as your main striker. I find it absolutely dumbfounding, potentially the biggest mistake that QSI have ever made if they're going to go through this transfer window without signing uh, another striker. And I think, yes, Cavani didn't do anything terrible yesterday, but his movement, his inability to uh, find, find that wavelength that Ibrahimovic had with a Verratti or Ibrahimovic had with Thiago Motta and even Rabio towards the end of last season was a huge problem in PSG's attempts to build because they simply were struggling with a rather flat 4-3-3 formation last night. Now, I also don't really understand why Unai Emery has switched from the 4-2-3-1, which works so well in preseason, to go to this 4-3-3 formation. Now, they say in Paris that it is because they need to accommodate the central midfielders because they're worried about losing people like Blaise Matuidi, etc. I'm sorry, but if you're coming uh, to a new country, you know, as a fairly untested manager in Europe, because let's be honest, Unai Emery, yes, he's done well in the Europa League, but he is not a world-renowned manager, to come there and try and change your brand of football and the way that you play within about three or four weeks is a very dangerous thing to do. So generally speaking, there's a lot that um, PSG have to address, and I'm sure Eric will go into that in more detail shortly. But this is a fantastic result for Ligue 1. And, you know, really, why can't anything happen this season? Yeah, it's, it keeps that door wide open, especially this early on. And, Eric, I want to talk about PSG's style and, the, and their tactics in this one because I don't know if you felt the same, but especially in that first half, it, it looked like Emery tried to stick with that 4-2-3-1. Obviously, Pastore was injured in, 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 in the stands, but Verratti seemed so out of place in that slightly more advanced role, and it really upset the rhythm and when they went to the 4 through 3 it didn't really help either no I mean I don't know I, I just watched the game the match this morning I didn't have a chance to watch it live yesterday unfortunately but you know to start to start these players in you know what is obviously your biggest match of the season uh, to date in competitive football I mean the trophy de champion might mean something it's the trophy etc cetera, etc cetera, but you know you have Krakowiak who is your arguably your key summer signing you know, say what you will about about um, Hesse. Krikoviak's a player handpicked by Emery, brought in from his former team. Uh, we know he can get it done against a variety of caliber of opposition. Uh, doesn't even see the pitch. Tiago Mata, is this a birthday present? He gets to start at the vicinage field. <laughs> uh, you know, Rabio was, was fantastic. Um, I, I think that, you know, as Verratti still is finding fitness, it seems to be the case. Obviously not playing the whole match. Uh, I prefer to see a 4-2-3-1 with Krakowiak and Rabio at the base of it. Uh, both have good energy. Rabio has a bit more physicality. Blaise Matuidi, yeah, see ya. I, 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 think, I think given he came into the league at such a young age, he's such a high-energy style. Uh, we saw it this summer. We saw it towards the end of last season in the Champions League. 
I think Blaise Matuidi is no longer the player he was two, three, four years ago. Um, the energy is not there, um, and he only fits into a 4-3-3. I'm not shedding any tears if he goes. Get $25 million from Juventus. Uh, you know, get, get the money from a Premier League cl- club and reinvest it into someone who can get you goals. That's, that's the issue right now. I mean, again, strikers don't come a dime a dozen. We're seeing this wave of rumors about Julian Draxler, $75 million? I'm sorry, that doesn't seem like the answer either. I mean, Draxler did kick on a bit uh, towards, the end of the, towards the end of the season for Wolfsburg, but I don't see him being a 20-goal a, a season scorer, a 20-goal a season scorer in league either. I don't see him as being a Champions League winning quality player, and that's that's QSI's ambition. That's the reason they brought in Unai Emery. That's the reason that they want that they want to improve this season is to get a player who can rotate managers confidently. Emery has had no problem doing that at Sevilla, who can you know adapt players in, that might have had a, a poor reputation into into getting having a harder work ethic. You know, and I think we've seen that to some extent. I think Lucas Morris had a, a good start to the season, particularly in that regard. Uh, his defensive work ethos seems a lot better. He looks ready to hold down that place, which had been under some doubt uh, under Blanc this season. Uh, so there are some positives. Thomas Mounier looks a good signing as well. But the fact of the matter is, you know, playing a, a radical switch to to accommodate certain players speaks to all the problems that under that undermine Laurent, Laurent Blanc during his time at PSG, that undermine Carlo Ancelotti, player power. And that's that's been PSG's undoing, is that the certain lineups seem to work better in certain ways. You know, I know Marquinhos is just back from the Olympics, but, you know, once all four center backs are fully fit, that is Kempembe, Luis, Silva, and, Marqu- and Marquinhos, who are we going to see as the first choice central pairing? Because it wasn't Marquinhos enough last year. It was David Luiz because Thiago Silva prefers playing with him. So whatever's going on at PSG player power and how it's undermining who, who, who I think is a very a very fi- fine manager, Unai Emery, who has great ideas. Again, you know, Christian, I, point taken in terms of his success. I think he's an upgrade tactically. I think he's an upgrade on, on player management over Laurent Blanc. But the fact of the matter is, is if he's not given free reign to really run this team as he sees fit, to please a 30-year-old, almost 30-year-old Blaise Tweedy or what have you, I, I question whether PSG are going to be any better this, this year. Yeah, and I have to question... Sorry, Nathan, can, can I just say, I think that's an excellent point, Eric. And, and you know, I'm not saying that Unai Emery is a downgrade on, on Laurent Blanc. I just think that, you know, for his own safety as an individual, better to stick with the ideas that he had. As, you know, it's a, it's a great point about the player power. And I think this is exactly the issue. Who went to the dressing room at halftime when PSG were 2-0 down? It was Nasser Al Khalifi, the PSG president, and uh, sporting director Patrick Kluivert. You know what? What sort of team is that being run? This is the third weekend of Ligue 1. This is the first time that Unai Emery is losing a match as a PSG manager, and all of a sudden, PSG president Nasser Al Khalifi thinks he should sort it out. I think Nathan's absolutely right. Unai Emery can succeed, but he absolutely cannot if he's got his hands tied behind his back. Yeah, it, it didn't make any sense, and and f- from my point of view as well, you, you, we mentioned those three in midfield, and and if he's playing Verratti to please him or or or, or anything like that, I couldn't understand why. Why don't you play someone like Rabiot in that centre attacking midfield position, who's not too he's, he's much better box to box, but he's, I could, I'm sure he could fill that role better than Verratti managed to do, where he seemed a little bit too lightweight, he seemed like he couldn't quite find the space. It, it seemed it very strange tactically to try and 
try and do something like that. And and you've already mentioned the defenders, Eric and Christian. I want to throw the man who's probably been thrown under the bus of this one, and that's uh, David Luiz. He he didn't have the best of nights again. Did it? it was one of those one of those nights for him, wasn't it? Yeah, but we know we know who David Luiz is, and we know what he does. I mean, this is no longer a surprise to really anybody. In fact, it wasn't even a surprise to Chelsea fans immediately. You know, they predicted it all when when David Luiz was sold to Paris Saint Germain. This is a man who was bought because Thiago Silva wanted his Brazilian buddy at the club with him. Nothing really more, nothing less. Otherwise, there's absolutely no explanation why you'd overpay so much for a central defender who is arguably not particularly good and who is hampering the development of one of the best young centre-backs in the world right now in Marquinhos. There's absolutely no other explanation. So I think it was almost arrogant the way that PSG set up last night. And I think that it's also arrogant that they don't think they're going to need to sign a striker to at least provide some form of competition to Cavani, who I thought actually didn't have his worst game last night, but positionally, uh, vis-a-vis his teammates, still has absolutely no understanding. With, with each other. And, and you're right, Marco Verratti did, at least in the first half, play higher up. We all know that Marco Verratti's best position is in a sort of pillow type of depth role. Um, he's the individual who can, who can do everything at the base of midfield, whether it's spreading the ball or, or intercepting the ball. So that it was a bunch of bizarre decisions, but I think we also need to make sure that we do not detract from an excellent team performance from Monaco. I thought specifically the first goal uh, via Juan Moutinho was a wonderfully worked team move. Dribble Sidibe proving exactly why he deserves this call-up that he's got to the French national team with his work and industry down the right-hand side. And I think actually if Monaco cannot be thrown any nasty surprises towards the very end of this transfer window like they were last summer with Anthony Martial, then we can see a fantastic title challenge from them this season. Yeah, and it'll be interesting. And you mentioned one young defender that they're restricting in Marquinhos. I'm slightly worried about Kimpembe, who's been better than Luis if it went to, if and when Thiago Silva and Marquinhos come back. But we'll, we'll ch- chat about Monaco now and how successful they were. And I won't toot my horn too loudly about that formation that I dreamed up for them. And I'm, I'm more annoyed that I couldn't talk about it last week. But I was rubbing my eyes in glee, Eric, that they, they were playing the three at the back with two wing backs and the two centre attacking midfielders behind the striker. It was an it just was worked to perfection, wasn't it? Yeah, and I, honestly on paper, you know, we we had bantered about this a little bit on Twitter yesterday. You know, I was I was out with some friends during the match unfortunately and it wasn't on TV here in the States. Uh, you know, I, I joked about trusting Andre Araji, but honestly, you know, he's not great as a centre back, he's not great as a right back. Play him kind of in between and and he does all right. Uh, I, th- I think that he provided great cover for Sidibe, uh, who, again, as you rightly say, worked really hard. But you know, having Fabinho on that side of the pitch too, I think whatever potential damage you could have had uh, from Raji uh, was really ameliorated by the the work of those two. Other side of the pitch, uh, you know, Benjamin Mendy, you know, given that license to get forward and, and put in crosses, and he is a pretty decent crosser of the ball. He's just not the best defensive in terms of defensive positions and tackling. Uh, so he gets a bit of a, more of a free roll, too. He's got Bakayoko on that side to help him out. Uh, yeah, there may be something to this. I might I might switch the positions of Moutinho and Bernardo Silva to get more out of Silva. But other than that, I think this formation works fantastically well. Yeah, and, and the real great thing about it, I thought, was it really smothered the center of the pitch for 
for PSG. I mean, there was about fi- there was about five players at all times in that area: Bakayoko and Fabinho, and then the three centre backs. That when PSG play that narrow style, where Di Maria comes in and Lucas comes in, it's so restrictive in that area because there was no space for them to play. And because also the wing backs were so far forward, the width that PSG got from Kazawa and Elrier in the earlier games was completely negated because they couldn't get past. Those wingbacks, they didn't want to venture too far forward because they were worried that they were leaving the gaps in behind. I thought it was absolutely genius to employ it at that moment. And you've already mentioned him, but Bakayoko's been fantastic so far this season, hasn't he, Christian? Yes, there's three games gone, so we have to be careful. And also, we don't want to alert any Premier League scouts with two days to go of this transfer window. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, no, 100%. Very, very impressed with him. I'm quite, I mean, the thing that I'm most impressed about is how quickly he's, he's progressed. It's been a very short period of time that he's got sort of any playing, regular playing time. Uh, and the departure of Jeremy Toulalon has really allowed him to flourish so far. I think even Monaco were close to signing Joshua Guillevogui from Wolfsburg. And in the end, Hardim said that he wanted to give uh, Bakayoko the stage, if they can keep hold of Fabinho, as the two defensive midfielders this season. So... That's really exciting from a Monaco point of view. I think your points tactically about Monaco 100% on the money. And I think that honestly, it would be a real shame now if something which is frankly looks like it's going to be beautiful this season is broken up by, by a Premier League club in the coming hours. Yeah, and uh, congratulations to Monaco for a fantastic result that does blow Liga wide open. And, and uh, a hat, tip hat of the hat to uh, Leonardo Jardim for finally taking my advice. But uh, we'll tune, talk tuning about... in, tuning in on the Get French Football News show. Yeah, it clearly is either that or uh, or I'm copying his notes from somewhere. I don't know. Um, that game in the Principality wasn't the only upset of the weekend as Dijon locked off Lyon with a four-two win. Uh, Eric, why did Leon fall away in this game? Well, uh, <laughs> we had uh, the Mapu Yanga and Biwa of last season pass a visit, unfortunately. Uh, or at least the first half of last season. Uh, yeah, I think that the communication between the Central Defensive Partnership uh, and Lopez wasn't on key. I think that uh, the fullbacks, again, Rafael, I'll keep saying it, is a liability. Uh, Rebus wasn't uh, on as on as on far as we expected from him. Uh, again, Dardair not doing the work tracking back. You know, I, I again would much rather have Jordan Ferry in that role. Just uh, you know, I, I think that you know Leon probably thought that they would walk this, given the way Dijon has started the season. But um, they were fired up, and, and in Baptiste Renier, there's also a very very fine goalkeeper. Uh, Abdel Hamid uh, and Shafiq, I think, are two mm-hmm. superb pickups for them. Again, I mentioned them in the previous show uh, from other league teams. This is a well-constructed D on side, and I, I think that you know we have rightly tripped them on the previous show as being probably the best of the three promoted teams, and I think that their performances thus far have have far and away borne that out. Um, you know, you have a, a lovely performance from Samaritano, or sort of the the cut rate Matthew Valbuena, if you will. Uh, but, but you know, joking aside, yeah, just a complete team performance from Dijon. Uh, they were at the races. They were hungry. I mean, and c- can we say that Leon's, you know, players are probably distracted by those call-ups? Lacazette, Fekir, you know, uh, it, it, that doesn't serve to, to, help, to help anybody. 
uh, in terms of their concentration. I mean, yeah, Lacazette scored a great goal, but he and Fakir having to go off, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I just think it was a, just a lack of focus. Leon didn't didn't look at the race, and that's frustrating because the fact of the matter is, you know, on paper Leon should be should have should have walked this and should be should be top of the table right now. But you know, Dijon were desperate to get some points, heading into the international break, uh, to continue some of the decent momentum they'd have in terms, at least in terms of their style of play, if not their results. Um, whereas I think, yeah, Leon were just n- not not ready for this. Well, Eric's already mentioned it about uh, Alexandre Lacazette and Nabil Fakir being called up to the uh, senior French squad, but both were injured in this game. Um, Phil, um, Christian, how much of an impact did that really make? Yeah, sure. It made it made a bit of an impact. I thought Lacazette still had a good first half before he had to go off. I don't think Nabil Fekir is anywhere near the form that he was this time last year. I'm not blaming him at all. I think you know it's a very considerable injury that he's having to overcome uh, with the ACL. And I think, to be honest with you, we're probably not going to see the Nabil Fekir that we saw or that lit up uh, Ligue 1 at, at times the season before last until maybe even 2017. Uh, you know, hopefully he has been able to have a full recovery. Obviously, the news that he had to have a slight procedure again on the same knee uh, today, which Jean-Michel Aulas says went well, is worrying because it suggests that whatever happened in terms of the first operation was not fully successful. So I think that is a huge worry for Lyon, that potentially Nabil Fekir, who had shown so much promise, is dealing with much greater physical issues than we thought he might be dealing with at this point uh, in his recovery from the ACL injury. I think, to be honest with you, the big differential, at least at the start of the Bruno Genesio regime, uh, between that and Hubert Fournier's time as Lyon manager, was the intensity of the press when Lyon didn't have the ball. I thought that was fantastic uh, in the last six months of last season for Lyon and really did make a difference. I thought, to be honest with you, on the weekend it was fairly disappointing and I've not seen uh, a, a Genesio side looking that generally speaking, lackluster since he took over. So I think that's also an alarm bell. Uh, look, I think that professional footballers, if Lacazette's head is turned or Fekir's heads are turned by an international call-up, then this should serve as a very stark lesson because this was Dijon. You know, And again, Dijon themselves often at times, at least in the first half, struggled to really string more than four, five, six passes together this is going to be a side, we've highlighted, I think, very rightly, this is a side that has the potential to stay up. But this is a side who definitely needs to be in the market for another centre-back to uh, partner at Delamide. I think that there are several deficiencies in this side. Maybe also they could do well to pick up a defensive midfielder. So, honestly, this was a fairly embarrassing result for Lyon. I think also people are not giving enough attention to Nicolas Nkoulou. I have not been convinced by Nicolas Nkoulou for the last 18 months. He is a player who we know can be extremely good, that sort of modern centre-back um, with the pace and alertness required to really dominate not just Ligue 1 opposition but also European opposition. But I was worried that it would take him a long time when he arrived at Lyon to find the Marseille form that he displayed almost in 2013-2014. Now is the last time that I think he's been consistently impressive. So I think Lyon are dealing with that. And then, of course, their other option is Mamona who still can't speak a word of French and is struggling a little bit to adapt to life in France. So I think Lyon has some real issues to address and hopefully Genesio can uh, work on those during the international break. 
Yeah, it's an interesting one. But let's let's talk about Dijon and and how much success they had. And now it's it's a positive sign, really, Eric, that two substitutes were the ones who scored the the two goals that were the the difference in this one. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I I've got to confess, I don't know much about Lise Malou, but wow, what a goal! Uh, that was really impressive. Uh, Bambula is uh, again a youngster, I believe, on loan loan from Monaco. Uh, yeah. That's correct. Again, I have. This is the first time I'd seen either one of them play. Uh, but yeah, this is the thing. I think that you know, with Valolios, it's a fairly veteran team, right? Amalfitanos, Martano, Balmont. Uh, you know, Dioni's a little bit younger, but by and large, these players are are, are very experienced. And I think for someone like a, a Bambula, um, there's there's going to be much more of a willingness to go all out to go guns blazing for that that brief period of time for which you know they might they might get a cameo. I mean again, Bambula was introduced early in this early in the second half, I believe. Uh, but again, they see these opportunities as as rare. So you know they're going to do their best to fit into a system, uh, to play with energy, to be a live wire, and and not only that, but to see Leon as a scalp. Uh, particularly in, in the case of Bambula, if you're a lone player and you can torch a team that's in the upper echelon of, of Ligue 1, which Lyon is, you know, poor results or not, um, you're going to get that much more notice, whether it's from uh, your parent team or from other teams around Europe that could be watching this game for various reasons, uh, and you're going to raise your profile. Uh, I mean, let's face it, if, D- if Dijon had beaten, say, Angers or Montpellier for 2 uh, there wouldn't be the same sort of shockwaves, if you can really call it that. Uh, but because it's Lyon, because it's a Lyon team that had been on fine form, uh, it garners quite a bit more notice, and it. I think that those those younger players in particular, uh, coming on, are are going to be that much more motivated to to make a positive impact in the game. Yeah, and it's important for for newly promoted teams to get off to a, a decent start, and this kind of win can be a real jump off point for them, especially scoring their first goals of the season as well. But we'll we'll move on to affairs that even though we're three weeks into the season it's it's already time for our first international break and, and Philip will be at home cursing his, his luck and, but they, we'll look through the first round of call-ups and there's been a fair few new names thrown into the mix and we've already mentioned that with some injuries over the weekend there's been a few more added to that but Christian what do you think to, uh, what do you think to the uh, squad as a whole? I don't have much to complain about I think the only thing that I would say is if Patrice Evra is now past his sell-by date in Didier Deschamps' mind, then I think so should André Pierre Gignac be. I thought he was wholeheartedly disappointing at Euro 2016. He's not an individual who's going to improve. He's not an individual who's likely going to be at the next World Cup, so I don't see any point in having him in the squad whatsoever. I think initially Kevin Gamero should have been called up instead of Gignac, and I hope that that is the sort of strike force that France look to attack these next round of World Cup qualifiers with uh, in the future after, obviously, this round of, of, of matches, uh, one that looks like Lacazette, Giroud, Gamero, and then, you know, potentially some, some other wide players, but those three being the important strikers for me. So, yeah, I think, to be honest with you, it's, a, it's an impressively uh, bold squad from Didier Deschamps. It was about time that both Sébastien Corsia and Djibril Sidibi got the call up. I think they both deserve a go, even if he's only done it because both Jalais and Sanya had slight fitness concerns. 
the omission of Eliakim Mongala at centre-back is not at all surprising, and Varane will come back in and try and make that right-sided centre-back spot his own again. You know, I think Kurzawa is potentially, has had a very, very good 3-4 months, a very good start to his PSG career under Unai Emery. Looks like he's now going to be the obvious first-choice left-back, and we all know his attacking potential. He's still got a bit to work on defensively, especially with positioning, and notably from, from set pieces as well, uh, in my point of view. But I think Kurzawa versus Dean is for now the right uh, pairing at left-back for uh, Didier Deschamps to go and attack this Russian World Cup with. In the midfield, many people might have said we could have seen Rabiot, Rabiot staying with the under-21s because they've got some important games coming up in order to qualify for Euro 2017. So I think all in all, a fair squad. People will still complain about Johan Kabay, obviously ended up being injured and then missed out anyway, and Moussa Sissoko, but we know now Didier Deschamps likes to latch on to people, make them the sort of, his sort of chouchou, if you like to say, and Moussa Sissoko will be in and around that squad uh, barring some sort of miracle for the next two, three years, definitely. Eric, I want to talk about some of the new boys that are in the squad, and, and that includes those that came in because of injuries. And the big headline one for us and for um, Borussia Dortmund fans as well is, is Usman Dembele, who, who's had a meteoric rise really over the last six to nine months, hasn't he? Yeah, I think that he brings a lot of a lot of positivity to the team, a lot of excitement. I think that his versatility is a real big feather in his cap. He can play basically all across the front line. He's looked good in preseason for Dortmund. I, I think that he's he's you know getting used to playing with players of a higher caliber, and that's going to serve him well in the national team too as well. You know, playing with the likes of a a Marshall, a, a Gamero, a Griezmann. He's he's you know. Just playing football at a higher level, and he, but he still has that sort of exuberance that, you know, I think the live wire, live wire cliche uh, that I think you know most international teams need to have as as a change of pace off the bench, um, and and hopefully he gets gets a good run out. I, I'd be surprised to see him start either match, uh, but I'd like to see him get perhaps 20 minutes in both. Uh, so yeah, I mean, well well done for him. It's I think it's fully deserved. Uh, the right backs too, I, I think. You know, these two have been, you know, Bar Sarajori, probably the two best right back, right backs in France uh, over the past couple of years. I know CD Bay was played at left back at Lille, but uh, you know we've seen <clears throat> again in midweek against Villarreal how well that went and why he's a much better natural right back now that he's playing that position in Monaco. Uh, I do feel for Jale. I, I I still wish, and again, there's a bit of homerism here, I, f I wish he had gotten a bit of, bit of a chance at the Euros. I don't think Sanyo is anything special, and I think Shelley offered a would have offered a little bit more. Uh, Rami is a bit puzzling for me. I, you know, I think that, again, this is Deschamps with his right-left favoritism again. I, you know, I can't think of anybody off the top of my head that I might choose to replace him, but, uh, I mean, you know, he's 31 in December, is he really going to be an, an important part of the, that team in 2018? I struggle to think of that. And Dogbia, though, is probably the player with whom I have the most issue. I think he was not very impressive last year at Inter. I, I saw him play there a handful of times. Uh, he was, you know, I saw him play against PSG. And, yeah, I, I, okay, great. I understand that, you know, you need you need Talisa, you need Rabio, uh, you need... You know these these young these under twenty one players will are still eligible for you know to 
you know, give give them a major tournament experience before they become uh, an important part of the national team. But yeah, that, that's a little frustrating. That especially given the, the start that Rabio's had to the season, that either he or Talisa or even Maxime Gonalon uh, weren't given the call up ahead of ahead of Kondogbia. I think that that's you know uh, on name only, and it's it is again as as Christian really says, one of those players who enjoys a, this somewhat unexplainable relationship with Didier Deschamps and is going to be called, not regardless of form, but perhaps despite form. Christian, how do you think Kevin Gamera will fit into this squad? I mean, it's it's his first call-up in a long while, and, and he's only come in due to injury. Do you think we'll see him at all, or, or do you think he might be on the periphery, really? No, I think Didier Deschamps has got some interesting decisions to make. Olivier Giroud has played about 20 minutes of competitive action in the 2016-17 campaign in all competitions with all teams so far. So the question is, does he play Giroud uh, up front immediately against the friend against Italy in the friendly? I reckon it'd probably be Gignac that starts against Italy, and then Giroud might come on and then start in in the World Cup qualifier against Belarus. I like Gamero. I think he should have been at Euro 2016. And dare I said, if he had been at Euro 2016, and that Gignac chance that it, Gignac gets in the 90 whatever it was minute, where he hits the post after scuffing that shot, I hate to say if Gamero had been in that position, maybe maybe the summer would have been more enjoyable for us all. But you know, I think that was the one one glaring omission for me in the summer squad for Euro 2016 that Didier Deschamps picked, and I'm delighted that he has the chance now to make his mark because. Deschamps does have this this sudden, I think Eric Eric's alluded to it a lot, but he has this sort of weird uh, process of picking players where once he's decided that he likes the individual or doesn't like the individual, it's then very, very hard for you to really change his mind in either direction. I think you see that you saw that with Dimitri Payet, there was virtually you know, there, was, there was virtually picketing to get Payet into the French national team last year. Uh, and only after a huge media drive did Payet actually get his chance, and then obviously Payet took it, so Deschamps couldn't really then omit him again. So Gamera has the chance to make him undroppable, make himself undroppable now. I think just on the centre-backs, I'd echo Eric's sentiment about Adil Rami. I think that we're heading towards 2018 with what's likely going to be a ticket of uh, Umtiti, Koscielny, uh, Zuma, and Varane. And I think that Zuma probably will get a call-up within four or five months and replace Rami once he's got more consistent football after a considerable injury that he suffered last season. So I think, look, you, you only have to look at the under-21 team, the under-19 team, to just realize how special and how fortunate we are uh, with the amount of talent that France has, has at its disposal now, but also in the coming 10 years almost. So I think that this is a, a good squad a squad which has the right balance of keeping change and continuity from the Euro 2016 work that was done, but also bringing in some individuals with a view to 2018. And I'm looking forward to seeing Les Bleus have competitive action in these qualifiers for the next two years. Yeah, they've got a very interesting in group in that in that qualification. But one final question about the squad to you, Eric. And Hugo Lloris obviously misses out through injury. He'll be out for a couple of months yet. Yeah, and it, it leaves an open gap in that goalkeeping position in between Mondonda, Ariola and Costil. Who do you choose to, to play that? Because there's only one of those who's had regular game time so far. Uh, I'd like to see Ariel get a chance. I thought he was fantastic in preseason PSG, so yeah, that that would be my certainly be my mandate. Um, 
the other thing I would say is Emmerich Laporte, again, I I would like to have seen him get a look in ahead of Rami, even if he doesn't stick with the squad heading into 2018. Um, yeah, just a, just a final thought there. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, I, think, I think with Laporte, Eric, similar from Deschamps' point of view in the sense that he's just come back from a severe injury. Um, but I agree, 100%. And I think actually the Laporte situation is quite critical because... He's already been making noises about becoming, you know, playing for the Spanish national team. So I think that's a really urgent one that Deschamps needs to tie down. Yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, right. If we look at Ramos and Pique, are both 30 this year, 29. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's that's a worrying one for Deschamps to probably jump on. Just very quickly, Christian, would you start Mandanda even though he's he's not had too much football with Palace so far? I think it's a crying shame that Ariola is not or has not been picked as PSG's first choice goalkeeper this season. I mean, aside, I think Steve Mondanda will play both games. I think that's just my prediction. That's my Didier Deschamps logic hat going on. I think I'd like to see Benoit Costil maybe play the friendly because I think players should be rewarded for uh, gaining consistent playing time with their clubs. But I think we'll see a Mondanda times two ticket. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one and an interesting friendly and qualifier against Belarus to boot. But that's it for this week. It just, it's been a busy one this evening. But uh, my thanks to Eric, um, Philip, um, Christian and Mo and to everyone listening at home this evening. There is no preview show on Thursday, so enjoy the weekend of international fixtures and we will see you at the same time, same place next week. Aviento and goodbye.